um, good morning, everybody. It is just morning in New York. Uh, this is Ian Williams, president of the Foreign Press Association, and it gives us a great deal of pleasure to welcome back Ambassador John Bolton. And as we've been just, just discussing, uh, whether Confucius said it or not, we live in very interesting times, and uh, we have more complex international situation than for many years, and ominously, possibly since 1939, with uh, the situation in Asia, the situation in Europe, and of course the situation at home uh, with the um, Republican Party and the aftermath of the Trump presidency. So Ambassador Bolton uh, wants to touch on all of these issues that he's been intimately involved with. And uh, to some extent, the glue here is the legacy that uh, Donald Trump in his presidency left for this president and how this president is dealing with it. So uh, John, over to you, please uh, Please tell us what you think about these. Uh, uh, Ian, thank you very much for having me back and thanks for everybody who's uh, tuned in. I just have a couple of things to say uh, briefly at the outset and then uh, really I'm open to your questions on whatever you wanna cover. But I thought it was important uh, uh, for, for those of you who are, who are covering uh, the US domestic scene as well as the, the broader international questions uh, because there is there is confusion and, and uncertainty about exactly what's going on in American domestic politics, and I think it has, for obvious reasons, a very direct impact on what U.S. foreign policy is. Uh, and so uh, I want to mention uh, we have uh, my super PAC has just finished its fourth national poll, uh, first one being in April of last year, uh, and then two others last year, and then one, as I say, issued just a couple of weeks ago that's been asking in a number of different ways, both a general national survey and then a particular sub-survey of Republicans and independents who vote in Republican primaries, uh, their attitudes about Donald Trump. And uh, we've asked this question in a number of different ways uh, to try and test uh, the uh, sentiments there, uh, because despite the narrative that some in the American media have, with all due respect about Trump's continued dominance of the Republican Party and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think when you ask actual voters, not people inside the Washington Beltway, not elected politicians, not media commentators, what the people have to say is really very interesting. And I think uh, what my surveys show, but what other surveys are also increasingly showing is that Trump is a declining influence in the Republican Party, that he's increasingly uh, in the rearview mirror. Uh, let me just give you a couple of very quick statistics on what we found this time. And uh, looking at questions we've asked in prior polls, obviously you want to see what the trend lines look like. So for example, we've asked people, well, what, what do you think about, how do you character, characterize yourself? Are you a Trump Republican? Are you a moderate Republican? Are you a conservative Republican? Uh, and what's happened since the last time we asked that question in September of last year, the number of people who characterize themselves as Trump Republicans has dropped from 29% to just under 15%, so almost a 50% drop. We've asked people a number of times uh, if Trump endorses a candidate uh, in a primary election, uh, would that definitely influence you to uh, vote for that person? And the uh, first time we asked that question was in July of last year, and the number of who would definitely vote for a Trump-endorsed candidate was 20.4%. Uh, 
uh, in the poll we've just released, it's down to 12.6%. Uh, we've asked people a kind of standard question, what's your impression of Trump? Very favorable, somewhat favorable, somewhat unfavorable, very unfavorable. Tracking from a New York Times poll in October of 2020, just before the election, when Republicans answered that they were 77% very favorable to Trump uh, and others somewhat favorable and, and, and the rest. So we've asked that question right on through. And in this most recent poll, the number who say uh, they, are, they have a very favorable approach to Trump is down to 44%. So in other words, it's fallen in a little bit over a year from 77% to 44%. And then another question we've asked, this will be the last one, uh, what, what do you want to see uh, Donald Trump be the nominee in 2024? Or would you rather see a fresh face and steadily climbing since the first time we asked it in July of last year? Most recently, 56% of Republicans said they wanted a fresh face. Now, let me be clear, that doesn't mean Trump's support within the Republican Party is zero. Uh, and it doesn't mean, honestly, it's falling as fast as I would like it to see, but it is falling. Uh, and I don't think anybody should be surprised at that. The American people typically vote looking forward. Uh, they want to know who's going to address the issues that confront them. You can see the issue today is 7.5% inflation uh, in the month of January, a level not known since 1982. There's some millennials who are alive today who don't even know what inflation is. Uh, that, that's what's going to drive the uh, election, not Donald Trump's retrospective on uh, who won the 2020 election. So I just want to make this point, uh, Ian, I think we've sent to you the press release and the attachments on our most recent poll. I'm happy to send it to anybody on the call who wants to see it. Maybe you could send it out. I'll, I'll do whatever you want. Yes, to make we'll it. send it, sir. no problem. Okay, well, whatever, whatever is convenient and, and happy to talk to anybody who would like to, to get into it further. And I say all this because the, you know, if you if you listen to some people, you would think the Republican Party had become completely isolationist and had given up on the rest of the world and uh, didn't think Ukraine was very important. Uh, I, I think the actual facts uh, show the contrary. So that's why looking at the circumstances we're in today, uh, as Ian said, it is very interesting times. I think very dangerous times for the United States and its friends. And I'm very worried about uh, the direction of policy that the Biden administration has taken. Uh, before we get to Ukraine, you know, they have been desperate for uh, over a year now to re-enter the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. They've made more concessions than you can calculate uh, to, the, to the regime. Uh, and I think they're in a position where, contrary to what I think is in the U.S. best interest or, or the interest of our friends and allies in the, the Middle East, uh, that uh, this is going to be the subject of huge political controversy in this country uh, if Biden does go back in. And I'll guarantee you this, if a Republican wins in 2024, the U.S. will withdraw from it again. So th those who are thinking of major economic benefits from the release of sanctions, don't think too long about it because they may not last very long. Uh, we've obviously got uh, questions with China on Taiwan. Uh, the East China Sea, the South China Sea, the border with India. Uh, uh, the Olympics are going on now, and uh, this is a hi highly reminiscent of the 1936 Olympics in Germany. It's a propaganda show. Everybody knows it. 
uh, and it may be the quiet before the storm, both with respect to the Indo-Pacific and, and maybe with respect to uh, Eastern Europe as well. So let, let me turn to Eastern Europe now, and, and uh, uh, I won't dwell on this at length, but I'm, I'm, as I said, more than happy to answer your questions. My take uh, uh, at the moment is that uh, Vladimir Putin has not yet made up his mind exactly what he's going to do or what objective he thinks he can reach. Uh, I think he's doing a continuous round-the-clock cost-benefit analysis. Uh, he's got a very wide range of options, and he's trying to see how much he can get uh, at uh, a minimal cost. And I think his objectives uh, uh, range from the highest strategic-level objectives down to, down to things that are really kind of minimal in their implications, but which justify this uh, huge military buildup he has uh, around the, the borders of Ukraine. And I do think uh, Putin is thinking strategically here. Uh, many of you uh, no doubt recall what he said in uh, 2005, uh, that the breakup of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Now, I and other people believe it was a pretty good way to end the 20th century. That's obviously not Putin's view. Uh, and I thought for a long time he wanted to reestablish uh, Russian hegemony in the space of the former Soviet Union. I think now that remains his objective, but I think he may have expanded it to include uh, sovereignty over uh, a good bit of that territory, not simply hegemony. Uh, but he's also looking, and this really, I think, is his biggest immediate strategic objective of trying to find ways to weaken and split uh, the NATO alliance. In, in Putin's view, a weaker NATO is a stronger Russia. Uh, there are plenty of splits already to exploit. Uh, when Chancellor Schultz of Germany was just here in Washington to confer with President Biden, I do not think we had uh, an impressive display of allied unity. Um, uh, we've, we had a lot of strategic ambiguity. In fact, as Chancellor Schultz himself said at the press conference after the meeting, uh, we've had President Macron of France in uh, Moscow uh, and then in Kiev, uh, uh, I think trying to enhance his uh, prospects in France's upcoming presidential election. Uh, and I think Putin uh, can see these splits. He knows the economic pressure that he can bring to bear on Western Europe through uh, gas, uh, natural gas supplies, the issue of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, and I think Putin in in his, in his dreams would like to play for the highest stakes here and find a way to fundamentally uh, weaken NATO. But he has a range of objectives below that uh, kind of macro strategic level. Obviously the focus is on Ukraine, but uh, you know he could be playing a shell game here as well. While we're obsessed with what's going on there, he could be looking at a new amalgamation with Belarus. He could be looking at some kinds of operations in Georgia or Moldova. Uh, uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan, the Central Asian republics. We've just seen a Russian intervention in Kazakhstan uh, uh, at the request of the government there. There could be a lot of other things in, in the works. Uh, and just on Ukraine, you know, uh, I think people uh, have viewed it as either he goes in or he doesn't go in, that he invades to take over the whole country or, or not at all. Uh, President Biden, unfortunately, introduced the idea of a minor incursion into Ukraine and, and it, with the implication that NATO would have to adjust what its reaction would be. I mean, I think Putin has 
uh, a range of options just within the just within the scope of Ukraine that he might invade uh, only to take uh, portions of Ukraine, perhaps adding to territory that Russians effectively control in the eastern part of the country or across the northern coast of the Black Sea, landlocking uh, whatever remained of Ukraine, taking the port of Odessa, going all the way right up next to Romania and uh, Moldova, uh, and getting that Russian presence back uh, very near the Balkans. Uh, there might be other variations on this theme. He might declare Russian sovereignty over the Donbass, annexing that territory now controlled by separatist and Russian irregular forces. Uh, he, he's got a whole range of options. And that, uh, and I'll conclude with this, that, that's, that's what worries me. Right now, Putin has the initiative. He has the momentum. He's calling the tune. I think time is on his side. He's making money off this crisis. If you look at the price of oil internationally now over $90 a barrel, still in that range. Um, he's not in any hurry. And uh, I think the West as a whole has responded tactically uh, and so far inadequately. So I think this is, uh, this is a crisis that's, that's far from over, unfortunately. And I think the implications for how the US and the West uh, handle this, uh, coming on top of the catastrophic decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, could have a profound impact on how America and its allies around the world are viewed, especially how they're viewed in, in Beijing, but also in Tehran and uh, Pyongyang. So I think stakes are high here. The outcome is uncertain, and uh, that does make for interesting times. But uh, so, Ian, thanks again for uh, having me, and I'm, I'm happy to answer uh, questions from your, your colleagues. I'd, I'd like to lead off with a sort of general point. It struck me as you were talking is that, you know, uh, as, the, as the Speaker of the House once said, all politics is local. But Americans, despite a generally insular attitude, do expect their president to represent them internationally. And in terms of presidential presence and popularity, international politics becomes extremely important, doesn't it? And I'm wondering how this plays out between Trump and uh, Biden in the sense of uh, a hand on the tiller of the ship of state in the times of storm. Well, I think Biden has already suffered uh, significant political damage uh, from his handling of international relations. You know, in the first, I don't know, six months of his administration, his favorable versus unfavorable ratings were, were positive, maybe plus 10. But this summer, his uh, favorable, unfavorable ratings went upside down. He's now minus 10 or worse. Uh, and it coincided exactly with the withdrawal of, uh, from Afghanistan. I mean, you can see it on a graph of the average of all the polls taken that do that rating uh, at the websites that, uh, that, that track that. Uh, and as, it was almost as if day by day, uh, as the situation in Afghanistan deteriorated, Biden's approval ratings fell. Uh, and they've never recovered uh, uh, since, uh, since, since the summer of uh, 2021. Now, there are a number of other factors that keep them in very, very negative territory for Biden. But I, I have a feeling that the watching this chaos in uh, Kabul and elsewhere in Afghanistan on a day-by-day -day basis did not sit well with the American people. They don't like to see the country humiliated on global television. Uh, and Biden just went off the edge of the cliff at that point. Now, if we have something else uh, 
similar to that in Ukraine or elsewhere in Eastern Europe, I, I think Biden's going to pay a high price. What, what's interesting to me, just from a political perspective on this crisis, is there's not a lot of upside for Biden uh, in a peaceful resolution to Ukraine. There's a lot of potential negative if Americans perceive his reaction as weak uh, or ineffective. So little upside, but high potential for, for downside. Uh, I, I don't actually think Trump plays into this very much. Uh, my own view is that uh, Trump is not going to run for re-election in 2024. I think he knows he lost in 2020. I think he fears he would lose in 2024, and he hates being called a loser. I think what he'll try and do is be the kingmaker among the Republican candidates, uh, and it's that's going to be interesting to watch. We all saw uh, Vice President Pence uh, last week defend what he did quite correctly on January the 6th, resisting Trump's efforts to try and have him interfere in the counting of the Electoral College vote. Uh, and that, that's going to be a big issue for Republicans. You, you, there's no compromise on that point. You're either for Trump or for what, uh, what Pence did. Uh, and so I think, I think Trump's kind of out of this debate at this point. He doesn't have anything new to, dis, new to say, but I think all of the many other Republican candidates and certainly uh, Republicans in the House and the Senate uh, have been uh, very vocal about their, their views on Ukraine and, and Iran and China. Well, we started off by talking about the complexity of it. And we have one question here from uh, Claudia Rosette. If Putin and Xi succeed in sidelining the U.S. as the dominant power, um, do you think Xi and Putin have got further plans for what happens next when they're facing each other across the uh, across the Esso River or whatever it is? Yeah. Well, I think uh, I, I think this issue of the relationship between Russia and China is very important. In fact, I'm I'm writing an op-ed on it now that will appear, uh, I hope, in the next few days, so I don't want to scoop myself on it, but I would say this. I think it's in America's interest to try and break uh, the relationship between Russia and China. I argued when I was in uh, the administration, I argued to the Russians that ultimately uh, being a junior partner uh, with China is not going to be to Russia's advantage. Uh, I have to say I had no impact on it. They, they don't see the dangers. They do see uh, that it makes them stronger. And I'll tell you this, it makes China stronger too. Uh, there are a lot of people in the United States who worry about the threat that China poses uh, really throughout this century. And I think that's a correct view to take, but they argue that we should forget about Europe, forget about the Middle East, forget about everything except worrying about China, which I think is a huge mistake. And I think this relationship between Russia and China is a good example why a singular focus on China uh, is not in our best interest. The U.S. remains a global power. Its interests are worldwide. And with its friends and allies, it has to protect these interests on a global basis. How we behave in one region has a clear effect on events in another. If we withdraw, as we did from Afghanistan, we create a strategic vacuum, uh, in this case in Central Asia, which uh, Russia, China, and assorted terrorist groups are already trying to fill. So it doesn't, uh, Biden argued that withdrawal from Afghanistan would allow us to put a greater focus on China. It's uh, actually not the case. I think it puts us in a weaker position vis-a-vis -vis China. Now, Francesco Semperini wants to know how are Europe and in particular Italy playing in the Ukraine crisis? <clears throat> but I'd like you to expand on that. Uh, we have 
the Germans behaving in a very odd way in, from some people's perspective. And then we have uh, Macron, who seems to have neo-Gaullist ambitions to strut the world stage, uh, playing a part. H how do these factor in, in particular, in the context of NATO? Well, I think France and Germany are the two, the two biggest uh, problems, but it's not at all certain, despite the rhetoric coming from the White House and some other uh, capitals, that, uh, that NATO really is united on this uh, question. Uh, how strong the sanctions will be if uh, Russia invades Ukraine, how uniform they will be. Uh, for example, one of the sanctions that, uh, uh, that the administration is talking about is uh, forbidding American banks to engage in clearing transactions uh, involving foreign exchange between Russian rubles and American dollars. Uh, and if this kind of sanction were put in place and basically uh, greatly restricted Russia's ability to, uh, to get access to dollars, uh, and it would be worldwide because American banks would also be forbidden from dealing with foreign banks that allowed clearing ruble dollar transactions. So the choice would be if you're, if you're a big uh, European or Asian bank, you want to trade with, you want to exchange things with Russia or with the United States. But, but if the European Union doesn't go along uh, and have a similar prohibition on banks clearing euro ruble transactions, then Putin still got access to a, to a major international currency. Uh, and Chancellor Schultz said really nothing on that subject. They've been very vague. So I'm, I'm quite worried about uh, uh, how unified NATO will be or how unified it will be on strong sanctions as opposed to rhetoric. And look, Macron has all but said he'd rather have the European Union be the principal interlocutor with the Russians uh, because, because he thinks France would play a larger role there. And all I can say is if Europeans of, of any nationality think that the European Union is going to protect them from an aggressive Russia, uh, good luck with that. So um, we have a question from Simon Locker. Wasn't the decision to leave Afghanistan ultimately a Trump decision? I mean, Biden stuck the can partly because of the ineptitude with how it was done. Uh, but the decision itself in principle was announced rudely and brusquely by the, the former president. No, that's exactly right. And I said in my book published in June of 2020, you know, we don't know what, how it will turn out in Afghanistan, but make, make no mistake, this peace deal with the Taliban and the decision to withdraw is Trump's. In history, it was his mistake. What Biden did was accept the mistake and then compound it uh, in, the, in the manner in which the withdrawal was executed. But I think uh, uh, if Trump had been elected to a second term, I do think he would have withdrawn all American forces, and it quite likely would have been just as chaotic as the way Biden did it. Uh, Trump made a huge mistake in engaging the Taliban uh, and not fully involving the government of Afghanistan, the government we helped create, the government that had had many, many problems to say the least, but, it, but at least had some democratic legitimacy uh, of which the Taliban has none. So yeah, I put uh, responsibility on Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo who negotiated this deal uh, and Biden just picked it up. He had a chance to try and fix it. He failed to do it. Well, there's a danger, follow on from there, that. The deal was negotiated in Afghanistan and shamefully excluded the uh, the government that we right. 
allegedly supported right. in Kabul. Um, and at the moment, isn't there a sort of shades of Munich that uh, people are venturing to um, negotiate a Munich-style agreement over Ukraine without involving the government in Kiev? Well, certainly Zelensky is very, very worried about that. And I think one one thing to consider here is that, uh, uh, it, let, let's say Putin follows the course that I have suggested I think he might be doing, and he only takes another big piece of Ukraine, not the whole country. Uh, I am very worried that in places like uh, uh, Germany and France and, and in places, parts of the United States and the House and the Senate, people will say, well, that's not nearly as bad as it could have been if that's all he's going to do. So let's not have strict sanctions. And I think that would be the wrong lesson to for, for Putin to take away from this, that he can he takes it bit by bit, uh, he's not going to face real opposition. I think we have to understand here, Putin's got two attributes that are not often seen together. He's both patient and agile. So he's prepared to wait, but he's also adept at seizing the moment uh, when, when it's right. And uh, that's why I say we're, he, he doesn't feel any sense of time pressure here. People in America may feel a sense of time pressure because we're so, we're, so, we're an impatient people. But, but Putin's not impatient, and he's got the momentum, as I said before. He, he's, uh, the initiative remains on his side. Um, Frank Cacciardo uh, says, did the Minsk agreement fail because it was poorly constructed, or was it that neither side had any intention of implementing it? <laughs> well, I don't think the Russians had much intention of implementing it, but conceptually, the agreement was flawed from the outset. Uh, because it treated what happened in the Donbass region uh, as an internal uh, Ukrainian conflict. And so the great outside mediators, France, Germany, and Russia, were, you know, they're just there to help the Ukrainians sort of sort things out. And they were dispassionate and uh, didn't have any skin in the game. Well, that's ridiculous. This is a conflict between Russia and Ukraine. It's not, it's not an internal Ukraine matter. And yet the posture of the three external powers uh, was treated as if they were all morally equivalent. So I think Ukraine, look, they had a, a, the barrel of a gun at their head at the time that, uh, that they agreed to both the Minsk agreements. And, and I think we're living with that consequence now. And I think the Normandy format that, again, Macron proposed this to uh, Putin, proposed resurrecting the Normandy format when he visited Putin in Moscow, uh, is, is a, a playbook made for the Russians. Uh, when I was national security advisor, I, I made a few passing efforts at inserting the United States into the Normandy format. And I think, uh, I think it's fair to say the Ukrainians thought that was a great idea, but the Germans, the French, and the Russians didn't for, I think, what we can see now are pretty clear reasons. Well, murky reasons, I suspect, but still. <laughs> um, there's, well, that, this issue of principle, I mean, because principles were given away in Minsk, we, we, we allowed the, the, the West allowed the Russians to pretend it was an internal Ukrainian conflict <clears throat> and that uh, they weren't involved. Uh, and similarly with the, um, the whole issue of annexation and changing boundaries, um, you were involved in Western Sahara, one of the questioners makes the point, and Biden has still to reverse the Trump um, unilateral decision to rip up decades of international law and UN decisions and allow the Moroccans, uh, uh, well, accept 
that the Moroccans have annexed Western Sahara. So, I mean, Biden's in this. Can you go to your allies and say, we're prepared to go to the war, go to war in the end for this principle? But by the way, the principle doesn't apply somewhere where the French don't like it. Yeah. Well, look, I think their I think their switch on Western Sahara was a clear mistake. Uh, uh, I, I've been at this now for 30 years to try and give the people of the Western Sahara a referendum on their future. Uh, I, don't, I don't think this is a hard question uh, in an age where we're supposed to uh, believe that people are entitled to govern themselves and to have a free and fair referendum. We should have done it 30 years ago. It's a, another major failure of the United Nations uh, system. But on, on Ukraine, I mean, I, I think the whole point is to, to we don't want to have to go to war with Russia over this. Biden, uh, I, think, I think that's clear from, from everybody's perspective. The issue is how you create deterrence in Putin's mind so that he never crosses the border uh, in the first place. And Biden's made one mistake after another, undercutting his own efforts to establish uh, structures of deterrence. He said at the outset, American forces would not participate in combat. Now, nobody wants that, but why give it away for nothing at the beginning? Uh, uh, have you heard Vladimir Putin say Russian soldiers won't participate in combat? No, and you never will either. Uh, moreover, the, the deterrence that Biden tried to create was the threat of retribution, economic sanctions, after Russia invaded. And, and those are legitimate steps. I, I, I agree with all the threatened sanctions. But the point is the cost doesn't get imposed on Russia until after Russian forces have already crossed the border. And I've argued for some time now that what uh, the West really needs to do is impose costs on Putin before the troops come across the border with the promise that they will be lifted or they, they certainly won't get worse if he stays on the Russian side. Uh, for example, by surging military assistance, lethal military assistance, uh, to Ukraine, which the United States and uh, Great Britain and, and, and some European countries have done, but not all. Russia hasn't, uh, sorry, Germany hasn't surged any assistance, any lethal assistance. They gave 5,000 military helmets and a field hospital. I mean, that's almost a joke. I agree. <laughs> yeah, it's, it certainly is not deterring Vladimir Putin. I, I think, uh, I think I would put more U.S. and NATO forces in Ukraine, not to fight, but to work with the Ukrainians. And as I've said, let, let Russian generals on their side of the border looking through their field glasses see a lot of American flags and wonder what that means. But the real way to put pressure on Russia is to say Nord Stream 2, not only is it not uh, operating now, it will never operate as long as Russian forces are in Ukraine against the will of the government of Ukraine. Uh, so and the sanctions should be imposed now on the basis of Crimea and Donbas. Right, exactly. And and look, Putin, Putin uh, in 2014 did not feel nearly the pain he thought that he would with the annexation of the Crimea and, and in effect, the de facto control over the Donbass. Uh, and the lesson he derived from that is he can get away with it again. I've got, you've got to erase that lesson uh, or, or deterrence is, is not likely to succeed. One of the issues which always haunts people's minds when they're looking at this, you know, the key issues like Sarajevo, Munich, you know, his, his history has scripts which are there. And to what extent? Putin is, is being amazingly puckish in a way. You, you described him as agile. He's bouncing around from issue to issue. He's probing 
And, you know, he's being cheeky in some ways. He's thumbing his nose at Washington <laughs> and, and Biden and the West. Uh, what point does this risk a Sarajevo moment where a completely unforeseen trigger starts off something that's far bigger? Yeah, well, I think I think you're always at risk of miscalculation uh, uh, in a situation where this much military force is built up. And it may be, co contrary to, to, to my view, it may be that uh, the West really is much more united. It may well be that Germany is prepared to stop Euro uh, clearances. Uh, it may be that they are prepared to cut off Nord Stream 2. But what we think really doesn't matter. The question is what Putin thinks. And if he thinks that uh, NATO's will is weak, he will act on that basis. Uh, and, and even if he's wrong, he will act on that basis. And that could lead more readily than not to conflict. There are any number of uh, intelligence reports that the United States and the United Kingdom have made public uh, about Putin preparing uh, false flag operations or pretexts for that would justify a Russian military incursion. I mean, we we are uh, we are 80 plus years after the the Germans did the same thing on the Polish border and used used the pretext of a Polish attack on Germany uh, to invade in, invade in on September the first, uh, 1939. So it's not like the Russians haven't had uh, experience in this in the past, and that is the sort of thing that, uh, as Zelensky has said, could lead to a general European war. I don't think so. But I think we're at a higher risk of that than we've been in a long, long time. I'm looking in the midst of all of this complexity. Um, we have China and Taiwan. Um, I think some of us were fairly surprised that Biden has been um, as forthright as he has been on Taiwan in terms of extending recognition and uh, ignoring Chinese, you know, Na plus ultra on recognition, the upgrading of the emissions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how far is, is that going? Will, are the Chinese likely to take advantage of the diversion on the, uh, on the other side of the, sub, of the Eurasia to, to do anything there? Well, I think they, the Beijing certainly is watching the reaction of the West very carefully. And uh, they've watched what happened in Afghanistan um, and as I, I said before, have read it uh, to be a sign of the Biden administration's weakness. If things go badly in Ukraine, they will take that as a sign. Uh, so the, the, the weighing of, of America's responses here is, is a, a very considerable element in China's calculations. Now, there are a lot of others. How did Japan and India and Australia feel? That, that sort of thing. But uh, that's, that's why the implications of a bad ending in, in the current European crisis have global ramifications. There's no, no doubt about that. And just extending from that, Matthew Lee wants to know um, your views on UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres' attendance at the Winter Olympics and what he said and didn't say there. And I would like to generalize that. Um, where is Guterres on Ukraine? Where, you know, you, I know you have strong views about the United Nations, but previous secretary generals have occasionally stood up on principle and said, this is wrong. Yeah. And it's had some moral marginal effect. Uh, the, the, the silence is almost deafening from the UN on these, on the both issues, really. Yeah, well, I, I think, uh, I think uh, 
Secretary General Guterres is doing climate change these days. Uh, so he's he's probably probably busy with that. I mean, look, uh, the Security Council isn't going to do anything about Europe or Taiwan because of Russian and Chinese vetoes. Uh, and in that sense, the promise that we all felt for the Security Council with the collapse of the Soviet Union has not been borne out. Uh, and uh, the, the brief renaissance of the Security Council, led by the George H.W. Bush administration because of Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait has has really not been uh, not been extended. So I look, I, I would make a broader point uh, about about the Winter Olympics in China. We've had two in China in recent years. We've had one in Moscow. Uh, when, are, when are we going to have an International Olympic Committee that doesn't hold these events in authoritarian countries? I mean, how many times do we have to go through this uh, experience uh, of giving a propaganda forum? I mean, I'd I'd, uh, I can think of plenty of other places where you can do the Winter Olympics uh, that, uh, that, that don't put you at this risk. And I know that the, uh, the International Olympic Committee and the National Olympic Committees are supposed to be independent of their governments, and they are in the United States. In the George H.W. Bush administration, I was at the State Department, I dealt with Olympics issues. It was probably the least important, but the most fun of any issue I had. I had no influence over the U.S. Olympic Committee. None. They did what they wanted to do. Does anybody believe the Chinese Olympic Committee is anything but an arm of the Chinese state or the Russian Olympic Committee? Why are the Russians even in this Olympics? I thought they'd been disqualified. So Russia's not there, but the Russian Olympic Committee is there. Uh, come on, this, this is, it's, time, it's time for the Olympics to grow up and recognize they're being manipulated by people. Uh, it'd be nice if the UN recognized that too. It's, it's unlikely. <laughs> You said it, not me. <laughs> it's a sort of political coitus interrupt us. You make a point and then you pull it back immediately. <laughs> uh, is what about the? I mean, we're, we're in America. There's always a tendency to think about the effect on American public opinion, which is often minimal in foreign affairs. What about uh, Putin? You know, he's this, the polls show that his visions of restoration of previous grandeur are, um, you know, evoke chords in the, in, in the Russian electorate when they're allowed to vote. Um, is this going to, if, is what he doing risk, is what he, he is doing risky for him domestically, uh, whether in terms of election or the more traditional method of a few generals taking him out the back of the Kremlin one night? Well, I think if this goes badly for Russia, ultimately, uh, yeah, it will have a negative effect on him. But uh, my reading of the situation, and I, I can't go to Russia either because I'm sanctioned by them as well, but, but uh, to, to, to take the temperature myself, uh, I think reporting has indicated that Russian propaganda internally has been uh, pretty decent, uh, decently effective from Putin's point of view, and people blame this crisis on the West. Uh, they blame it on the government of Ukraine. They... they uh, uh, they think that this is the West trying to take advantage of Russia. Uh, I think that's the farthest thing from the truth. But right now, I think Putin is able to dominate uh, uh, the public discourse with, with his opinion. So I don't think he's suffering at all. I think it may be a mild plus for him. Uh, and, uh, you know, if he can manipulate the public opinion successfully, uh, it, will, it will consolidate his position further. It certainly won't weaken it. Uh, Rachel Brooks um, 
is asking about the Russian naval demonstrations in the Channel and off the coast of Ireland. Uh, I mean, the Irish actually has to stop, had to stop them to, it was interfering with their fishing. So he almost had the IRA on their case for a while. Um, does the recent outreach of Russian naval craft reflect on policy errors, erosions, and breakdown in protocol uh, in, in the Trump administration, he says. But I mean, just on a general point, <clears throat> to just how much of a threat is the Russian sort of deep Navy threat? I mean, from, from 1905, when they sailed ignominiously shooting up a few trawlers in the North Sea, to uh, the time that they sent a ship round to Syria and it had to stop for fuel at NATO bases because it was falling apart. Is, is the Russian Navy a threat? Is it a long, do they have the, the long reach that they, they would like to have with it? Well, no, it's, I mean, I, I do think Putin has had a pretty successful renovation of the Russian army and, uh, and air force. I think the Navy is the lagging indicator there. Uh, but, you know, one of the interesting uh, consequences of this crisis has been to increase support in Finland and Sweden to join NATO. You know, when, when you see Russia moving against a near neighbor that's not a member of NATO, which Ukraine is not, but, but not moving against Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, it does give rise in people's mind to the thought, maybe after all these years, it's time to join NATO and become formal partners. I don't detect any rising sentiment for that in Ireland. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry it's not, but uh, because they know we'll protect them when it, when it, when it gets down to it anyway. But, uh, you know, a, a nation shouldn't be free riders. I'll just let it go at that. But I think what Putin is doing here is bringing, trying to bring a substantial part of the Russian fleet from Murmansk uh, into the Mediterranean and, and in due course here through the uh, Dardanelles and the Bosporus into the Black Sea. And so that's another couple of weeks away, perhaps. But when they arrive in the Black Sea, that's more firepower in place if he chose to do something. Uh, to put pressure on uh, on Ukraine along the northern shore of the Black Sea. And again, he's this is not uh, some kind of terrible cost burden that Putin is bearing. You need to do these exercises anyway. He's he's now doing a lot in Russian winter. People say that's climate's difficult. Look, these are all Russians we're talking about. They've been through Russian winters. So so they they need to they're 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 benefiting from this exercise. And I think the Russian fleet will benefit from it too but it makes the situation more dangerous. Um, Evelyn Leopold wants to know, does Putin need to invade rather than to continue destabilizing Ukraine, which he's doing very well, of course. Yeah, well, that's, a, uh, that's a, another uh, option really that Putin has, that, uh, uh, that a destabilizing, looking to get a government more favorable uh, to Russia in Kyiv, uh, uh, and, and, you know, there are things he can do uh, as they've tried to influence elections in Ukraine before. It's an irony that as he takes off more chunks of Ukrainian territory, he's also removing areas that tend to vote in favor of pro-Russian candidates. So the more territory he takes, the fewer people there are to vote for pro-Russian candidates. But the intimidation against Zelensky, and you can see in his talks with Macron, he was doing a little bit of that. Uh, there are other things he could do. And, you know, in, in August of 2008, when Russia invaded Georgia, Russian tanks were within a few miles of Tbilisi uh, until they pulled back to uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Uh, he could, uh, Putin could send tanks from Belarus uh, 
uh, and probably get close to Kiev very, very quickly just to say, see, I could do it if I wanted to. It's a form of intimidation, but then withdraw the tanks to uh, the tank columns to Belarus. All of these are things I think he, he is thinking about and trying to weigh what the consequences will be. What, how does this play into um, the continuous talk that comes up? You mentioned Finland. Uh, one of the solutions that other people want to propose for Ukraine is Finlandization, as after, uh, in, as after World War II. It, does, this, does this have any legs or, or tracks, I suppose, in, in the case of the... Like well, I, think, I think the advice that Finland would give is don't be Finlandized. Uh, you know, they, they did, they, they were, they were stuck with it, uh, really. And uh, uh, so we've gotten beyond that. And, you know, we're, we're at a point now, uh, 30 years after the breakup of the Soviet Union, where it's reasonable to ask why people in a country like Ukraine can't make up their own mind whether they want to be Finlandized. You know, there's a notion, it's, look, it's a prevalent notion in parts of the United States that uh, somehow Ukraine is in Russia's zone of, uh, uh, of influence and we have to leave it alone. You know, you might ask the people in Canada how they feel about that proposition. Uh, being in America's zone of influence, that's, that's, that's not the way we deal with Canada and they, they wouldn't like it if we did. And the Ukrainians are entitled to decide which way they want to go. Uh, it's not like the United States rushed in and said, we're going to scoop up all these Eastern and Central European countries. That's not how it happened. We didn't aggressively advertise to expand NATO. They rushed into NATO headquarters and said, for God's sakes, admit us as quickly as you can. They, they, had, they had just escaped the Russians and they wanted protection. And I, I think Putin's behavior is, is having the effect in at least parts of Ukraine of strengthening the view that Ukraine should, should some way or another come, come into NATO. It's very difficult proposition but uh, but but that that's the effect he's having yes, it makes you wonder if the kazakhs and ukrainians had the benefit of foresight that have given up their nuclear weapons so easily back uh, at the time of the fall of the soviet union well i would i would just say this they, they didn't really have nuclear weapons you know there were nuclear weapons on their territory but they were in the possession of the soviet rocket forces who still took their orders over telephone lines from moscow and, uh, you know, I, I don't think those weapons would have somehow uh, fallen into the hands of the new governments. What, what uh, George H.W. Bush and, and Jim Baker were worried about was ambiguity in where command and control of those weapons were. Uh, and, uh, and, and they wanted to make sure they didn't fall out of everybody's control and, and get scooped up into international proliferation markets and whatnot. You know, if, if, the, if people had uh, behave differently in the post-December uh, 31, 1991 period, maybe we'd have a different result. But it wasn't like Ukraine had a Ukrainian rocket force and gave it up. They had Soviet rocket forces on their territory. Um, Dennis Santiago wants, uh, how do you explain Biden talking tough with the PRC on human rights, but then uh, going after the Taiwanese on, on, the chip make, on, the, on their chip making? And this is overlooked but it's quite clear now just how important the chip making is uh and treating taiwan as a trade rival when it's the only it's it's the global superpower in chip making doesn't seem a very wise thing to do even for the sake of pandering to beijing yeah well i think i think biden's policies on taiwan and china and the the, the broader indo-pacific region are 
disconnected at this point. I mean, I give him credit for having the first in-person meeting uh, of the heads of state of the Quad nations, uh, Japan, uh, Australia, India, and the United States. That's, that's a step forward. Uh, I give him credit for uh, inviting the ambassador, the de facto ambassador of Taiwan in Washington to attend his inauguration last year. It's a symbolic step, but I certainly welcome it. Uh, uh, but but it's, it's not connected to uh, anything like a comprehensive view of how to deal with China. And, you know, just as Putin is calling the strategic shots in the Eastern European crisis, I have no doubt the Chinese are following a a playbook that's uh, that's much much better thought out than the American playbook, and uh, this is a constant problem on a bipartisan basis with American administrations, uh, and it's not easy to resolve. But but uh, but I think the criticism is valid that despite his uh, his uh, campaign rhetoric in 2020 about taking a hard line with China, uh, be because of what they've been doing across the range of of uh, issues, economic, political, and military, uh, we, we just haven't seen uh, much more than a few, you know, relatively uh, symbolic acts. Well, the, speaking of symbolism, we have um, deep concern about human rights. There's a lot of posturing and swinging from the chandeliers. And yet, um, those of us who've been watching Hong Kong over the years are in despair when we see for the last Three years, the Beijing has completely snuffed out every vestige of the uh, so-called two systems, one state agreement. Right. Look, it's uh, uh, my, my friend Jimmy Lai, the, the great publisher of the Apple Daily, has seen the paper closed. Many other publications. It, it's over in Hong Kong. Uh, it's a great. It's a great tragedy uh, for the people of Hong Kong, but really around the world. Hong Kong was an amazing city. Uh, and it's not going to be amazing anymore. Uh, and it also, I think, should say to people, you know, here's an international agreement that China entered into with uh, the United Kingdom uh, for this one country, two systems approach to last for 50 years. And halfway through it, they just basically said, all right, we're done with this. And the rest of the world said, well, that's, that's too bad and let them get away with it. I mean, the lesson over and over again uh, is that uh, People are afraid to stand up to China. And I think the implications of that uh, are it just makes it harder to stand up the next time they, they take some offensive step. So uh, Benny Avenue's got a, a sort of tiebreaker question. Are we heading for World War III or Cold War II? <laughs> well, I don't think we're headed for World War III. And I don't think it'll be Cold War II. I mean, I think uh, this is great power competition. Obviously, China and Russia have authoritarian systems. I think the Chinese have a have a view of uh, of how society should be organized in China. It's not it's not one that libertarians in the United States would admire, uh, and I don't think it's a system that anybody along China's periphery admires either. I mean, we're going to see in uh, South Korea next month the presidential election. Latest polls show it's very close. It'll have a huge impact on. Uh, uh, dealing with the North Korean nuclear program, but it'll have, I think it'll be a significant reflection on how the people of South Korea view events in China and the, and the threat that they face being geographically proximate to China. Uh, uh, I, I, I've, I've said before, I think China is the existential threat to the United States in the 21st century, and by the U.S., I mean the West as a whole as well, uh, and uh, they, they do think in 
uh, maybe 100 year long plans. The United States, we deal with quarterly reports. I mean, this is a, this is, this is a mismatch in strategic terms, but, uh, but it's time to start thinking in longer terms. And, uh, you know, maybe it's uh, 19th century mock politique, but it's much more complicated because China is so much more economically integrated into the rest of the world. And that's a strength for them and they know it, but it's a strength for us too, because uh, the other side of their influence over us is the revenue that they get from us from our purchases of products made in China. So two can play at this game. So we're coming towards the end now, but we, to, to bring it all back home, um, the, 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 form of, the shape of politics and the question of the Republican Party uh, is to some extent going to reflect the, the way that prosecutors and attorney generals seem to be converging on Trump, uh, the Trumpisters, <laughs> the, 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 the diehard Trump supporters in one way or another. Um, do, do these legal assaults, uh, are, are they significant? Are they going to be effective? And um, are you a witness? Are you going to be subpoenaed for? Well, I, I'm, I'm so far, I'm a bystander. I don't, I don't expect to be a participant. I, I'm not sure what the various investigations are going to come up with, including the investigation into Trump's private financial dealings uh, before, he, before he entered the White House. But I do think, as I said at the beginning, what my polls indicate and others is that Trump's influence is declining. And it, there's one very important reason for that. Trump has no philosophy. He doesn't think in policy terms. He thinks about one thing, Donald Trump. And uh, you know he has followers because he's perceived as a fighter. People, people think the political class in Washington cares only about itself. It's a it's a, analogous to the uh, phenomenon in uh, 17th and 18th century British politics of the court party versus the country party. Um, but, but ultimately, Trump is about Trump. And uh, it was interesting for four years, but I think, I think he's in the rearview mirror and he's going to stay there. That said, I think it'll be an extraordinarily competitive uh, race for the Republican nomination in 2024. I'll, I'll make another prediction. Not only do I not think Trump is going to run in 2024, I don't think Biden will run in 2024. And if he doesn't, uh, I don't think Kamala Harris will necessarily be the Democratic Party nominee. I think they could have a very competitive race for their nomination as well. So I think it's all to play for in terms of American politics. We'll see this November if Republicans get control of the House and the Senate. I think if we don't get overconfident, and we don't engage in a circular firing squad, you know, fingers crossed, I think things look good. But that's really the predicate then for the 2024 race. So who's your front runner for the GOP nomination? I, I, don't, I don't have a candidate myself. And my theory is let 100 flowers bloom. Let's have all the candidates get out there. Let's have them uh, uh, say what their positions are. And, and uh, competition's good in business, good in politics, too. You'll remember, of course, that when Mao Zedong said, let a hundred flowers blossom, he went and cut the heads off shortly afterwards. He's, he's a communist. I'm a Republican. <laughs> well, okay. Thank you very much, Ambassador. It's been a, we, we've covered a lot of ground and a fair amount of depth, I think. And uh, we were, it's, it's been informative and I think um, intriguing and inspiring. There's lots of food for thought here for everybody. Uh, thank you very much for your input. We'll be circulating your documents to people um, because you're hitting the issues, whether they agree with you or not. You're addressing the issues when a lot of people are evading them. So 
thank you very much from the Foreign Press Association. Thank you all for coming. Uh, remember, we hold these very regular briefings and uh, we invite you to join, we invite you to subscribe and even to donate to maintain our work. We have a, another intensive program coming up and uh, we will hope to, we, we look forward to hearing speakers like Ambassador Bolton, who will be provocative. It doesn't mean to say we're not endorsing, as they say, <laughs> but it's, it's a view that certainly deserves to be held and is worth wrestling with. Thank you, Ambassador, again. Thank you. Glad to be with you.